Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now okay everybody i have something really cool to tell you about if you haven't heard yet about anchor it's the easiest way to make a podcast let me explain here it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will uh, distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one single place. Now, the way that you can do this is you got to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and then you can get started it's really fun we just switched over recently here at all too real too and i'm enjoying it so far so be sure to check it out and uh let us know what you think Okay, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of All Too Real 2. My name is Michael Lee Cullen II, and with me, as always, is... Is um, Matthew Allen. Um, <clears throat> I was not uh, for this, this interview that you're about to listen to. I I secretly moonlight as a, as a speedster. And I, I got caught up in a different timeline. I couldn't. I totally forgot about the interview, so I missed it. I might be able to to jump in and and you know, but that might alter the timeline somewhat. So I'm not sure if I should do that or not. Yeah, you probably don't want to do that because maybe <clears throat> things will get worse than they already are in 2020. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be great. Not really. No. <laughs> I guess it couldn't get much worse. But um. The uh, well, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Knock on plastic. Yeah. I don't have any wood nearby, so I'm knocking on the plastic. Anyways, I do. I do. I yeah. got. I got. There you go. I got. <laughs> you got me. Okay. And um, so uh, today's episode, we are 
we have an, I had an interview um, with the very talented and uh, very insightful and entertaining uh, Jeffrey Weissman, who uh, some people know as the uh, as the second George McFly in the Back to the Future trilogy. He was also in the movie Pell Rider. He was in Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, he's done dozens of uh, television appearances. Um, he's very entertaining guy, very nice guy. Um, I th- think this is one of my favorite interviews so far, so hopefully uh, everybody enjoys it because he, he was just full of knowledge and stuff and very kind-hearted, good soul, I think. So, yeah, so... I don't know. So uh, let's just uh, jump right in here to the interview here with here's me and uh, Jeffrey Weissman. Uh, how are you doing today with all the craziness in the world that's going on? Like everybody else, probably, uh, you know, stressed out. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, uh, I've got sort of the triple whammy right now with all the smoke and ash falling from the sky from the West Coast being on fire up here. I'm I'm in the north of California in the wine country, and so we've I, I think the closest fire is about 25 miles away. Oh wow! Uh, but we've had them to the north, the east, and the south. So starting after that big lightning, uh, the electrical storm we had about three weeks ago, we had about five, 15,000 lightning strikes, and it started 700 fires. Oh wow! And, you know, not all of them are really big, but a few that, like, the one up in, near Armstrong Woods, where we like to go visit the Redwoods, uh, that one uh, really affected a lot of my friends and whole uh, towns, you know, being evacuated with people I knew and uh, upsetting people's lives for a couple of weeks. And then now with the higher atmospheric smoke and ash from the Oregon fires, uh, other friends who are just getting returned to their homes down near Santa Cruz and so on and so forth. It's that's pretty crazy making on top of, of course, the pandemic. Yeah. And my my beloved is at risk, uh, so I can't really go out, or she can't even go out without really being cautious, you know, diligent, diligent. Um, and then you know, seeing all the shit politically is so upsetting. It's yeah. just insane um, with the denial and. Uh, bullshit yeah um you know i because i have fans around the world i had a, a, quite a few fans starting to write me in february saying don't do what we're doing in our country like in uh, italy and uh, southeast asia you know very, people i know from other places don't tell everyone don't do like we have done uh, because we're paying for it and you know the body counts were so high there and uh, when you don't have leadership that really does the right thing, you know, we're paying for it. We, we shouldn't have 200,000 dead. No, we're, not we're, at all. We're, we're very close. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, but that, that on top of not, you know, having pretty much all the work that I have, I, I diversify as an actor. I, not only film and TV and, and stage, but also environmental theater and live in person work and fan cons and all of that, you know, just wipe the slate. I have been able to do some teaching, you know, virtually. Uh, but the in-person, in-person teaching too, you know, you, you've got to be intimate. You have to, if you're doing scene work, the actors have to be connected with each other and 
close and stuff, and that's it's just too dangerous, and I can't bring it home. Uh, yeah, you want so that, there I, want that, there that interaction with an actor. It's kind of hard to not have that if you're trying to teach them or even just act in the scene. I know a lot of people are doing Zoom acting and stuff, too. And Yeah, and, and I'm actually very, very successful with the Zoom stuff. But, you know, there's, there's the studio work, which is my really my favorite. I love classwork both on in, in, at university level and, and private studio level. And and to get people to sit down at a table to practice their cold reading technique or to do, you know, work on connection just for acting technique exercises, you need to see the electricity going on between the two. And you can somewhat on Zoom. Uh, anyways, but it's frustrating because you can't, you know, be right in there with them and, and uh, well, you can to a certain extent. What can I say? I'm a Libra. Yeah, I'll, I, I'll say I'll see the good good sides in bad things because it's my nature. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe in in humankind, and I believe in the goodness in people and heart. Uh, I I even think the corrupted or ignorant uh, are generally innocent who you know have blinders on. I don't. Yeah, no, I, I know how that is. It's like yeah. I uh, I was always taught by like my grandfather and other people that if you see like a lot of bad in somebody look for that one good thing in them, you know, sort of thing. So you got to try to find that sometimes, you know, you know, yeah, I think, yeah, (laughs) I don't think people are inherently evil. I think you choose evil. You, you practice bad things, you become that, uh, but you can make choices to rise above it. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I got into acting. Uh, you know, I was, first of all, a ham, you know, one be the center of attention and so on and so forth. But then I learned that there was so much more to storytelling and the best part of it is to enlighten and to elevate and to educate. If you can educate while entertain, great stuff. It's always good. Uh, I mean, it's it's always good to examine the human condition through art. I think that's kind of what we're here for. Um, yeah. Do you, do you know what we're here for? Yeah, I think it's just to, you know, <laughs> love each other and, and understand each other. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And, and what better way to, to celebrate that but by reflecting on you know, my friend's show that I just finished watching. He uh, went through his uh, youth, his, his uh, kindergarten classes, through his grade school, through his junior high, through high school as a black man in a very racist community. Oh, wow. And it was just beautiful to watch Cooper's storytelling because I, I did uh, improv with him back in L.A., Los Angeles, with uh, theater sports, which, uh, uh, whose line is it anyways, based on Keith Johnstone's theater sports. And Coop and I did uh, these wonderful improv games and storytelling uh, way back before Whose Line was around with people like uh, Brad Sherwood and, and Wayne Brady came in later and uh, Greg Proops, a lot of folk who were on Whose Line, Michael yeah. McShane, Brian Lohman. And uh, we, you know, we're doing storytelling and really uh, being silly as hell, you know, just just being wacky, but also doing it with a narrative that sometimes would go very serious. And he's taken all these tools, uh, like if you know who Brad Sherwood is from Who's Line, his Brad would spend hours working on his physical uh, prowess, his detailed technique is uh 
just so fine with not only being physical in his pantomime, but also doing sound effects at the same time. And in the show, one of the first things Cooper did as his mom talking to him, uh, you know, as a toddler, he just spits on the iron and she starts ironing. And and my, watching it with my wife, uh, my wife turns to me and says, wow, he's a good ironer. I mean, that's how good. <laughs> you know, so that that is, uh, it's an art. And I, I love, I you know, I have been a clown. Uh, you know, I do uh, work in theme parks even and, and such. And, and sometimes knowing how to blow, blow a balloon and make it into an animal gets me out of very tight situations in foreign countries that uh, look as, you know, I can make friends with the kids at least. Yeah. Um, because universal language. And these these tools, uh, I, I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I spent 13, 16 years at Juilliard to learn, you know, balloon animals. That's cool. Um, so uh, uh, it's joke. Anyway. I know. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a little slow tonight, but uh, <laughs> the, I'm a little um, slow all the time. So. Yeah. <laughs> the um. Hey, folks, this is uh, Michael E. Cullen II um, from the podcast that you're listening to right now, along with Matthew Haas. We just wanted to tell you about our great, great podcast Super. called Super. It's called All Too Real. And on that show, what, what do we do, Matt? We, we watch biopics, and then we talk about whether or not the movie matched up with the real story or not. So we, we, It was a lot we, more exciting than that, though. Yeah, right? so, 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 so we... We analyze the real story and the real story. Get it? Get it? Real. You know? Yeah, they're, they're spelled differently, yeah. folks. You can guess which one I said which way. <laughs> Anyways, um, so uh, sometimes we have guests, sometimes we don't. Um, but we uh, talk about great, great, uh, great movies like uh, Shattered Glass yes. and The Social Network and uh, a Futile and Stupid Gesture, among others. Um, those are some of the ones that we've covered so far, and uh. We're going to cover a lot more, so uh, please uh, subscribe on Stitcher, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you uh, find your great, fun podcasts, and be sure to share it with your friends. Do it. Do it. Do it. And make sure you're not afraid to get all too real. Bye-bye. So, so, uh, how did you, uh, you know, like, get started into acting and entertainment in general? Well, I, I grew up on, uh, you know, from watching black and white TV turn into color and seeing the, the fun that was to be had. You know, these, these guys in these boxes were, were having a blast, you know, uh, from the variety shows to the sitcoms to the uh, uh, you know, uh, cartoon hosts. You know, it was like, wow, you know got sucked into it and my folks were in the peripheral of the entertainment world in that uh my mom and dad for a little while my dad but my mom for many years was a bail bonds woman and she had bailed celebrities out of jail you know, like uh, winston churchill's daughter and her hot charges or lenny bruce you know several times for obscenity and so forth and and then my dad ran these clubs these private uh, gambling backgammon and bridge clubs in Hollywood or West Hollywood or uh, around Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. And his partner was Lauren Green for a while. And uh, I remember meeting George Bassman, his partner for, or his boss actually, one club who would uh, 
arranged all the music on the Wizard of Oz. And, and then I'd go with my babysitter to meet, I must have been about four or five years old. I remember going to meet Omar Sharif wow. at his club and then going with the babysitter to see him up on the big screen shortly thereafter. And she kind of flipped out both times. And I was like, wow, you know, there's that because that was very, I love my babysitter, uh, Susie. Uh, and if that's the way to impress her, I, I guess I have to do that. You know, it was kind of inbred early on in me that uh, uh, it was something to do, something to strive for. And I was already kind of the ham clown of the family and, and was doing that in school. And, and then basically around middle school, uh, seventh grade or so, I had uh, some guidance with teachers moving me into doing poetry and, and plays on stage, taking it seriously somewhat. Uh, and in junior high, getting cast in shows like Blythe Spirit by Noel Coward or uh, doing uh, shows uh, during summer programs, like uh, an off-Broadway show called The Me Nobody Knows. I did, I think it was 1972, I think it was 14, and just Last night, uh, I was in the, uh, a salon of actors from the Actors Gang, which is founded by uh, friends of mine, uh, Ron Rosen, Ron Campbell, uh, Lee Ehrenberg, you know, probably from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and, and, uh, and Tim, uh, whatever Tim's last name was, he wasn't there last night. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, Lee, Lee Ehrenberg, uh, Tim Robbins, and Lee, Lee Ehrenberg, uh, at the end of the night, after doing all these uh, 20 actors that are doing their different sets of whatever it was that inspired them for the theme at the salon, Lee, at the end of the night, said, I just want to point out that Jeffrey, who's here uh, tonight, he and I were, he was in my first show. I was 11 years old and he was 14. And we've been friends ever since. And that's something that I found early on with casts and shows, that they're a family. They're, they become like a unit even though it may be short-lived, uh, there's this very intense period where you have to open up your emotions, you have to open up your connection to the story, to each other. The relationship is everything in a good show. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sometimes the connection is so deep with your fellow performers that you stay friends forever. And that's an example of that, that I'm sharing with Lee. So I, uh, in uh, high school, you know, I, I actually, before then, I, I kind of put my foot down with my parents. I said, I want to be an actor. Let me do it. You know, I had friends. Uh, I knew Anissa Jones from uh, Family Affair, who played Buffy, and and uh, knew Lisa Gerritsen for a little bit, and, and uh, various other child actors. And, and I was like, they're working. Why can't I? You know, I want to save money for college. You guys, my parents are struggling. Well, I could save my own money by working. Yeah. They didn't want me to. Oh. They, because of the clubs they that they ran or owned or managed, they saw actors as kind of gambling, drinking, swearing people. They didn't want me to be. Yeah. And and I remember my dad coming home and saying, uh, "Do you know who Don Adams is?" Jeffrey? And I said, "Yeah, get smart." Because I asked him today. You know, I said, Don, my, my son wants to be an actor. Do you have any advice? And he said, Wally, tell him to forget about it. <laughs> it's about 10% talent and 90% luck. You know, and I was like, 
<laughs> okay, well, sure, but I still want to do it. And I remember when I was 14, I had heard Mel Brooks was uh, shooting his next movie in, in my neighborhood in Santa Monica where I was living. So instead of taking the bus home, I walked home from school through the promenade and I started seeing people in Victorian evening wear. I was like, oh, it must be around here. And there was one guy was, whose mustache was flapping. So excuse me, sir, your mustache is coming down. He goes, oh, is it? Who are you? I said, well, I'm an actor. Oh, yeah, what have you done? And then I started <laughs> listening. You know, I, I was in Merchant of Venice and Dark of the Moon and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, really? You want to meet Mel? And I was like, Brooks? And he goes, yes, come with me. And he took me to the Mayfair Music Hall where they were shooting the Putting on the Ritz number with, uh, you know, uh, of course, Gene and, and Peter Boyle and company. Yeah. And I, I was floored. The first person I met was Marty Feldman, who wasn't dressed in costume, but rather... In his street outfit, he was, I remember he was wearing like a beret and, and he wore a man band. I was like, wow, it's the first time I've seen a, a man carrying or wearing a purse. <laughs> and and I, I remember, you know, I didn't think twice when I was a toddler car carrying my mom's purse around. And I, I, I wear a man bag now, too. So I, I've come full circle. <laughs> but it was uh, it was very cool to to. Uh, kind of be on that set and make that connection. Roy, Roy Wallace was that extra's name. And I became friends with him and he started in a, a little bit mentoring me. He would give me a call saying, you know, I'm, I got a call today to be on medical center. You want to come along? I was like, yes. Wow. And I go down and hang out all day uh, on the medical center set. And, uh, I remember I had a private moment with Chad Everett. I was fooling around on this giant stair staircase that was leftover set from funny lady that had just shot there. And, I think it was at the 20th century, wherever it was. I don't recall. And, and I was hanging out on the set, kind of fantasizing, doing anything I knew that was appropriate for that set and uh, hanging out. And then I saw a figure down at the bottom of the set come over and, and pull out a flask and take a, a swig. I was like, oh, that's Chad Everett having a, a swig off his flask. <laughs> and, and he did, and he raised his his flask and did some little Shakespearean passage. And so I then replied with something from Merchant of Venice that I remembered. And he looked up at me like, you know, he'd been busted. And at the same time, he kind of winked his eye and said, nice, nice kid. Nice. You know, and anyway, uh, so um, I got my foot on a few sets and I still did shows at school and some community theater, but I was verboten for trying to go pro with my folks. And out of high school, you know, my folks saw that I wasn't going to give it up, and I asked for their help. They helped me get some money together to get professional headshots. And I also joined a, a casting company where non-union people could get their foot in the door and do crowd work at, as extras in films. And I just wanted to get on some sets. I wanted to get on some studio lots. Uh, and I had made quite a few films, actually, with friends in in junior high and high school and was really looking forward to being on a pro set. I even visited some location shoots in my neighborhood. And like I mentioned, the young Frankenstein, remember the FBI uh, being lectured by one of the, the co-stars who <laughs> gave me a rundown on my, my report card who said, you know, you got an A in English and a B in history. What's this D in math? <laughs> Kid, how are you going to know if your agent is cheating you? Well, you got to do better in math. Anyway, so 
I, I started getting these little bits and crowd scenes in films like FM and I Want to Hold Your Hand and uh, The Rose. And then kind of got, I had four different scenes, sort of roles in uh, a film called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And in the scene where I get brainwashed by Alice Cooper, uh, I did some dance moves, which elevated my contract to a union contract. Oh, so wow. I was finally all of a sudden eligible for joining the union when it was $350 to join. I think it's 6500 now. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, that was 78 Yeah. So, But I couldn't, I remember at the time I was like, I got to pay my rent. I can't afford to join a union because I don't know. Anyway, um, around that same time, I had a, a director, I think it was Gordon Davidson, the artistic director of the, the music center, Dorothy Chandler, downtown L.A., say I was auditioning. I think I even had a callback for Brighton Beach Memoirs. And he said, you know, you've got the talent, you're good, but no one's going to take you seriously unless you get some serious talent training uh I said, what do you recommend he said of course juilliard and i said I, I don't think my folks will afford that and is there anything on the west coast and he recommended the american conservatory theater so i set my sights on getting into the act uh, i auditioned once didn't make it but uh alan fletcher said, said you know if you don't make it this time just keep trying because you've got a lot of talent and so it took me a few years and i finally uh moved actually to San Francisco to be closer to get in and uh, in 81 was accepted and uh, was doing my intermediate studies between ACT and the San Francisco State and fell into an opportunity to audition for a lead in the major motion picture that that uh, notice had gone up in the theater department of San Francisco State and I was really working hard I was juggling up to six different scripts at a time and feeling like I was really getting my instrument in tune. And uh, I didn't necessarily think I was right for this role. I, I had a friend who I thought was right, and I wanted him to go to this open call. And the day of it, I made sure he was going to go, and he said he wasn't going to go. And I thought, you've got to go. His dad was a very <laughs> famous director and said to his son, he, he kind of sabotaged him and said, you can't, you can't act. And I said, show your dad up, so get this thing. I said, you know, he said, I'll go if you'll go. So I went with him and my friend Lincoln uh, and I both got called back by this director out of, you know, the 500 guys at this open call, going through them six at a time, meeting the casting director with their applications and stuff. And he and I both got called back to read with this actress. And then he got released and then I was told to hang out. I was like, oh. And so they had another scene. They wanted me to see, read another scene, and I did. And uh, and they said, okay, thank you. And I, and I was, I guess that's it. I think I'm done. So I'm about to my car, and the gal that I read with, who was an assistant to the director, I guess, said, listen, uh, Martin wants to see you again. Come back. The director wants to read you again or meet with you again. So I go back in, and, and uh, Martin Brest, who's uh, pretty famous now, uh, took me aside and said, hey, you know, you did really good on that first reading, the second reading, not so much. And I said, well, I didn't expect to be here. I'm, I'm kind of hungover. My, my girlfriend just graduated <laughs> at Santa Cruz, and I was at her graduation party last night, and I had to borrow my friend's razor. Uh, I didn't expect to be here. He goes, fine, fine, fine. Let's just read that first scene again. And I read it again. And he turned to Wallace Nisida, 
uh, Wally Nasita and uh, said, I wanted to, I want to test him. And, and so I ended up being in line and signed up for screen testing for this film called The Genius. And a Warren Oates was attached to it at that point. I think they were trying to get John Lennon to it. Uh, anyway, um, as it turned out, the film went into turnaround because Warren Oates died. And MGM and UA had merged. The uh, execs were battling, butting heads with each other. and all. But it was all very exciting because here all of a sudden going from middle of my studies into perhaps the heart of Hollywood was quite a treat and is a very rare story. So I was very lucky to have this much happen. And one day I got a call from an agent who had just opened up a West Coast office. She'd come out of the New York office of William Morris and opened a Beverly Hills boutique agency and said, you know, my friend Martin Brest told me that you're his favorite for the lead in this film. And I'd like to meet you if you don't have an agent representing you when to gain your trust because you have to have an agent negotiate your contract before you screen test. Yeah. I was like, okay. And how are we going to do that? She says, my, my friend is producing a film called The Right Stuff right now up in San Francisco. And I'm going to come up and visit him. And then I'd like to see you too while I'm up there. So this agent named Paula came up and visited me, presented me a nice fine bottle of wine, wooed me. And I, of course, agreed for her to negotiate for me or be <laughs> my agent. And uh, eventually the film got back on track and the screen tests were back on track to happen. And I... Uh, went down to, to do my screen test. The name of the film changed to War Games. And I tested the same day as Dana Carvey and Brian Backer, uh, John Crawford and Eric Stoltz. Uh, a couple of other really great guys. I remember there were six of us who tested all of us with Ali Sheedy. I was the only one who came in to test without an agent. Uh, so I felt really special because they, they had that open call in Chicago, New York, L.A., San Francisco, and Seattle, I believe. And uh, so my, my ego was like, Whoa. And <laughs> I, I remember during the screen test, Ali Sheedy kind of looking through me a few times. I was like, why can't I catch her eye? What's going on here? And there was Derek Stoltz in the corner of the soundstage kind of checking out. Uh, is she making eyes at him? What's going on here? And years later, I ran into Derek, and I asked him, I said, in 82, were you and Ali a I don't know what he was like, you know, during war games when we were testing for that. He goes, 82. Yeah, we were living together. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> anyway, none of us got it. Of course, uh, Matthew Broderick got yeah. it. But I got this agent and she said, you've got to move to L.A. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I, I was kind of a hot item. A lot of because I screen tested for this major role and a lot of doors opened for me. And I had a lot of really great general auditions, which is kind of a rare thing, a thing of the past now. Uh and about three months after returning to L.A., I landed my first role after auditioning for George Miller, who was uh, asked by Spielberg to direct an, a segment of Twilight Zone movie, the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, with John Lithgow playing the William Shatner role. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was a blast to be a part of. So that was my first co-star role in a film. I remember that movie scaring me as a kid. So, yeah. <laughs> All yeah, it was, uh, I, I was very proud to be in that segment, first of all, because George Miller was a delightful director's actor, uh, I'm sorry, actor's director. Yeah. And yeah. and Garrett Brown was there one of the first times a Steadicam worked. And John was a sweetheart to work with, just delightful. And Donna Dixon was lovely as can be. We got very close very quickly. And Abby Lane was terrific, J.D. Johnson. And, you know, everyone on that set, once again, was like a family. It was a great ensemble and everyone 
had a great time. I had, unfortunately, contracted cat scratch fever while we were shooting. Um, my, my girlfriend at the time had a, a cat who had had kittens in the middle of the night on the second day of shooting, I remember. Uh, I woke up with this kitten hanging from my arm, and I, I pulled it off. What are you doing? And went back to sleep. And the next day, I developed swollen glands in my arm. Oh, wow. And eventually, by the next day, two days later, I had red lines going up my arm. And the Warner Brothers nurse sent me to a, a local doctor who gave me three shots of penicillin in the butt and said, That's, That was blood poisoning going to your heart. So the rest of the shoot, I was a little off kilter, which kind of worked for the <laughs> mayhem that we were depicting. But I was also kind of pissed at Spielberg for. And I think others were too, because the accident with Vic Morrow and the children yeah. being killed, that had happened, you know, earlier in the summer, three, four months previous. And it seemed like it was very bad taste to finish the film, to complete it. But he had, you know, the accident was on the last day of shooting, so they figured the Landis segment was almost complete. And he had tapped, you know, Joe Dante and George Miller and, you know, his own segment and wanted to finish it. And I thought it was ballsy and kind of bad taste, but I was also grateful that it was, uh, first of all, the best segment yeah. in the movie, in my opinion, and also that it was my first co-star role. Yeah, I didn't even know that cat scratch, cat scratch fever was a real thing. I all I all I had ever heard was like the Ted Nugent song, so I didn't know. <laughs> I used to love Ted. Where yeah. what his happened? His mind to him? went. Oh God! <laughs> like, really? I uh, like the Kool Aid Ted. I went to his house one time um, and uh, tried to get in, but I couldn't get in. We had like a buzzer oh. that we, yeah, he, he was, because I live in Ohio and he was living in Michigan at the time and it was. Where, where is hospitality? I, I mean, know. come on. I talked to him over a recording and then it was, I mean, or, I mean a, a speaker and that was it. And then <laughs> I did a, a video with him and his wife uh, while I was playing characters at Universal Studios in Hollywood and they were very sweet at the time. And mm -hmm. we, had a good day but you know i didn't get to know i did i didn't even have a chance to tell him you know i used to know all the lyrics to stranglehold <laughs> yeah I, he's he's kind of i think lost it a little but <laughs> i think um, he got into a stranglehold yeah definitely or maybe he uh, got cat scratch cat stretch fever and it really went right, to his brain he didn't get the penicillin. <laughs> yeah um <laughs> so um um what uh what, what's like one of the like coolest opportunities you've had so far when you've uh, done uh, in, in film or stage or anything? Coolest opportunities. Yeah. I, you know, I, it, I have a tendency to blow my coolest opportunities because I get so <laughs> starstruck or nervous or self-conscious or too uh, cautious, you know, not wanting to step on toes. I remember uh, when I was working on Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood, uh, he had uh, something, a fallout and fired the catering company that we started the film with and the next day the new catering company came in and we're we were shooting on the on location on top of a mountain outside of ketchum sun valley idaho and it's ironically snowing in october <laughs> and and this new caterer wants to impress obviously and we're having steak and lobster on the top of a mountain in a blizzard and it's just clint and myself and my ex-wife at the table and and everything I said, Clint, I seemed to put my foot in my mouth. You know, it was like nice weather, Clint. And he's like, yeah, I didn't expect it to be snowing. And I, you know, he, I, I had a tendency to, to, you know, really kind of not be relaxed and uh, 
how should I say, not starstruck. Yeah. Because he's very imposing. I remember we were he, about to shoot my first scene in the film. My character is sort of this half-wit uh, minor kid who uh, who does a little comedy relief in the film and then cries heavily when Daddy gets killed. And I follow Clint, uh, who's going down the road to uh, scout out the next shot after my, my shot. We've already blocked my scene. And I follow him down because I haven't had a proper introduction. When I got cast, I went in uh, and was taped by his producer for six months and, uh, you know, had everything for my sense memory, for emotional recall, for my Zen technique, for my Meisner fantasy chart. I wasn't going to leave anything to, to chance. I was going to cry on cue, you know, I, and I did. And I got cast, which was really lovely. Kind of thanks to Chris Penn. I got a sidetrack for a second. Chris Penn had run in Sean Penn's brother, Chris, yeah. wonderful actor. Unfortunately, not with us anymore, yeah. but he uh, he had met Clint at a party in Malibu or something. He said, I want to do a film with you. And Clint said, okay. And he sent him the script, the film writer, and offered him the role of Eddie Conway. Chris threw it back and said, I want to play a good guy. I want to play a bad guy. And so <laughs> Clint moved him over to LaHood's son, the uh, character that attempts rape on uh, Sidney Penny's character. And uh, the actor playing Teddy Conway, the role I played, moved into Eddie. So the role came open, and that hot agent that I had, Paula, sort of found out about this role because it didn't come out in the breakdowns, uh, but she was kind of assertive and found out from the casting director that it was open. So she submitted me on it, and that's how I got the audition. And so Clint cast me from the tape. and But we hadn't met yet, and we were about to shoot my first scene. So I followed him down into the woods and and he turned around and he saw me there and he's in his duster and his hat even though he's directing he's still dressed in character so he can just jump into any scene he has to shoot and he goes yeah i go uh mr eastwood i'm jeffrey weissman i just want to introduce myself and he goes i know who you are who do you think hired you it's like oh yeah, yeah <laughs> that's got to be intimidating <laughs> well it, but i i Still, at the same time, I needed that icebreaker. I needed the connection, you know, to yeah. keep from the icon the and try to find the human in there so I could feel comfortable and relaxed. And which I love about Clint, because as uh, an actor, an actor's director that he is, he never says action that he felt that he probably learned from uh, Don Siegel, who probably learned it from John, John Ford, uh, that when uh, you say action, uh, actors generally tense up and get self-conscious. Yeah. And often he'll shoot the rehearsal. So it's much more natural. You know, if you get a, in fact, a few times, Clint would shoot a rehearsal and then say, all right, let's move on. And I would like, I remember the one time that, that um, crying over daddy's dead body, Chuck, who plays my brother, didn't hit his mark. I had to take his mark. and I almost kicked Doug, the dead daddy, in the head with my boots sliding on the fake snow uh and when i heard clint say let's move on that was good you know and it was rehearsal i was in clint's face so i said come on clint that was not right and he goes no no it just cut from your face so i knew right then that i then had the key shot of me crying it wasn't chuck who was supposed to have had that oh, and wow. uh so i couldn't argue with that though <laughs> yeah I, I remember reading that about uh about clint years ago how he would not say action and I'm, I'm an indie filmmaker myself, so when I would direct things, I when I started out, of course, I said action all the time, but then I just started saying, like, whenever you're ready, go 
ahead. You know, that's, that's exactly what he would say. Yeah. Since whenever you're ready. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot easier now, especially with, you know, video. So you don't have to worry about wasting film. So you can just exactly. let it go run the whole time. So, um, yeah. Um, Hi, folks. This is Michael Lee Cullen the second from the podcast that you're listening to right now, along with manager Matthew Haas. You got promoted? Yes. Damn it. Okay, anyways, um, folks, uh, do you like the show Superstore? I don't know. I asked the folks and nobody's answering well, me. Because they're not here. Oh, but we love damn it. it. Yeah, we love it, though. Okay, folks, if you like it as much as we do, you're really going to like the Super Story podcast, which is a podcast where Matthew and I go uh, episode by episode and give our little opinions and thoughts on it. Uh, sometimes we have guests, sometimes we don't. Um, just depends on how we're feeling. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so if you like this podcast and like our little crazy banter, then you should definitely check this out. Or I might get sad. And when I get sad, it gets pretty sad. Yeah. So I can't deal with him when he's sad. Yeah, no one can really. So, um, yeah. So, so check out uh, Super Story Podcast right here where you get this podcast, Super Story Podcast. I'd be remiss not to ask about the how you replaced Crispin Glover in uh, Back to the Future two and three. How did that come about? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to understand that too. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> uh, I had uh, shortly after the uh, Pale Rider Clint Eastwood film, and what else did I do that year? Scarecrow, Mrs. King. Um, in between the TV and and film work, I needed something cons- consistent that to pay the bills. And I was looking for work kicking around. And a, a friend of mine who played Stan Laurel, the Laurel and Hardy lookalike team, called me up one day and asked if I'd ever played Stanley. I was like, no, but I need the work. What's up? And, and it turns out his Oliver Hardy partner at Universal Studios on the tour had lost his partner and needed a new one. And I said, get me in there. I'll go. And, and I auditioned. I didn't know much about Laurel and Hardy. I, remembered seeing some of their films as a kid growing up and loving it. But um, the actor who played Oliver Hardy knew my work from a production of Romeo and Juliet I had done where I played Mercutio. And he turned to the boss and said, I'll, I'll train this guy. He's got talent. And within a couple of weeks, I was doing a passable Stan Laurel. And I started playing uh, not only Stan Laurel, but Charlie Chaplin and put together also playing Groucho Marx at Universal on the tour. So and if you're uh, guests, uh, uh, viewers, listeners uh, were at Universal between, say, 87 and 2001 and had a photograph with Stan Laurel or Charlie Chaplin or Groucho Marx, it might be me. <laughs> um, so I was working up at, at the tour, and the agent who got me the job there at Universal called me up one day and asked if I knew who Crispin Glover was. And I said, of course, yeah, I did a film with Crispin in 83, the year before we started shooting Back to the Future at the American Film Institute. And I thought Christopher was a fascinating actor, got his phone number and tried to stay in touch. And he said, well, they're looking for a photo double for him for a film. And I had heard, of course, the Back to the Future sequel was in talks or being kicked around. And I asked him, was that for sequel Back to the Future? He said, I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> he was like, get me in there, get me in there. And I met with the assistant directors and they liked obviously knowing that I'd worked on Pale Rider and Twilight Zone and other films like Johnny Dangerously and, oh gosh, 
uh, crackers with Louis Malle, etc. And and they then moved me into the next phase and and had me uh, go to casting. And uh, the casting director had me read scene the scene where uh, Marty and George are hanging the laundry in the backyard from the first film. And I know they were reading other actors, but I guess uh, they liked me enough to then they started sending me to makeup where I was being fitted for uh, face molds and body casts for special effects. I was like, well, if they're doing this, I must have this job, but I hadn't been hired yet. Mm-hmm. So it was all very kind of mysterious. And then they decided they were going to screen test me. So uh, I, I uh, had a screen test in the young George makeup, uh, which may, maybe resembled Crispin. I was like, oh, they must need George in two places at the same time. That's what I figured. Yeah. And, and I remember uh, Warren Beatty's version of Dick Tracy was shooting in the studio soundstage next door. <laughs> and I, uh, I ran into uh, William Forsythe and uh, was it Dustin Hoffman. Anyway, these guys yeah. were in their, in their incredible makeups. And here I was in this odd makeup, and I'm looking at them going, what the fuck are you supposed to do? And they're looking at me going like, what the fuck are you supposed to do? Anyway, my, my audition, my screen test with, uh, for Bob Z, for uh, Robert Zemeckis and Dean Cundy went well. I just, you know, did my thing as George. You know, I knew Crispin's uh, center of gravity and his gestures and, and did that. And I heard Dean say, hey, Bob, I think we have Crispin without the trouble. Wow. And I was like, what? what does that mean? And then my makeup artist, Kim Chase, he started saying things like, I don't know if Crispin's going to be in this. And I was like, well, what's that all about? And so I figured, you know, I had to put things in my mind, uh, together in my mind, because no one's telling me anything, um, except what I can infer from these statements. But I figured that Crispin, because that he just rocked George McFly so much in the yeah. first film. And I was like, God, I know that guy. He's knocking it out of the park. It's great. Uh, but I figured he had, because his star was rising from River's Edge and uh, other films that he had uh, nice supporting roles in, that he had another film that he was shooting that he couldn't get out of to return to do George. I was like, my God. Okay, well, they must have his permission for me to wear these prosthetics yeah. to make me look like him. Little did I know they didn't. Yeah. But nonetheless... And it was odd because on the set I was often referred to as Crispin. Oh, weird. Uh, oh yeah, it was, it was odd. Uh, I think Bob Z started catching himself and uh, stopped, and, and then uh, Mike, Mike, and I started getting along. At first, though, Mike was like, "Oh man, Crispin ain't gonna like this," and he just saw my makeup. And then by the end of the week, you know, he was introducing me to his agent. I think he wanted to get his agent's thoughts on the legal ramifications because. You know, his, his agent was also an attorney. Um, but, um, yeah, it was it was not so comfortable at first, but by the end of the week, Mike and I were having a beer in his trailer and, and shooting the shit. It was, it was nice to be a part of an amazing ensemble. I mean, Zemeckis did brilliant casting. Yeah. His, his uh, choice of actors across the board, they spent a long time, you know, Johnny Depp auditioned for George McFly in the first film. They offered the part to uh, my, uh, Marty to Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio turned it down. You know, it's yeah. the, the initial casting. I remember hearing Chris Lloyd say that when he first got that script, he threw it in the garbage. <laughs> and uh, 
because he only wanted to do serious stage. He was going to do a show in New York Broadway with Colleen Dewhurst, who kept getting sicker and sicker, and they pushed the show, and he was like, my God, what am I going to do? And his, his girlfriend happened to have saved that script. And otherwise, they were going to have Jeff Goldblum, I think. Uh, oh, wow. That would have been a different movie. John Lithgow passed on Doc Brown because he was taking that year off, I think. Huh. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of there's this wonderful book uh, that's the sort of Back to the Future Encyclopedia that has a lot of the casting sheets. You can see who they were considering: yeah. Dudley Moore, John Cleese, you know, <laughs> Doc Brown. Yeah, that's a great part. I play Doc Brown now. Do you? At, oh, I do. At, I at during Universal the, uh, or uh, no. Um, my good friend Jimmy D. Philippus is at Universal in Hollywood and. Uh, uh, I'm going to blank on his name. I just did back to 1885 with him. It'll come to me. Uh, I know I know the guys in, in Florida as well, Universal. Yeah. But no, um, I, I have friends with these Time Machine DeLoreans that from time to time do events and they want to dock around. And if they, the client then finds out that I was George in part two and three, they have a double wet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so it's kind of fun. Yeah. But then, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, one of my Uber Back to the Future fan, fan friends, Kevin Bosch, contacted me and said, we're doing a remake of part two. Would you do a cameo as, as Doc Brown or as uh, George? And I, and I got my wife and I to do a scene as George and Lorraine backstage after the Enchantment of the Sea Dance. Oh, so cool. I did a cameo in the uh, Project 88. You can see it. It's... 300 fans from nine different countries remade Back to Future Part 2 in 88 scenes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so check it out. It's on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. And then watch that. Uh, one of my Facebook friends, Ian Dreschler, Drescher, uh, wrote a Shakespearean version as if Shakespeare had written Back to the Future. <laughs> and he had posted that uh, an abbreviated version of his book was going to be produced by this company out of London. Uh, called the the show must go online, and I, I I wrote him. I said, "Are you still casting?" He goes, "Well, I'm not casting, but I'll send you their way. They may be." And I wrote these people. And I said, "You know, uh, if you're still casting, I might be interested in being a part of this." With my hopes of playing Doc, because I have a mind reading helmet and I have a flex capacitor and I have a lot of the props. <laughs> and uh, they flipped. They were like. They realized who I was. It turns out Ian, my friend on Facebook, he didn't know who I was. Oh, wow. <laughs> Until after I was cast. <laughs> That's kind of funny. funny. <laughs> uh, so so my wife was my art director, my customer, and my camera person, you know, because we're Zooming it. And I'm I'm literally, she at one point, she throws my computer on the floor because I have to crawl up the floor. She turns it sideways, so it looks like I'm crawling up the clock tower. <laughs> Nice. Uh, and then we rigged here in the back here at the, the uh, rope going across with a hanger. I do the slide for life, you know. And, uh, anyway, that's online, too. So if you go to uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's by its initials, T-S-M-G-O, the show must go online or the show must go online uh, spelled out. They uh, started at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, readings of all of Shakespeare's canon. Oh, wow. And they throw in these other ones of Ian, Ian's uh, adaptations of Mean Girls, Star Wars, and Back to the Future, as if Shakespeare had written those. So up to this week, I think we're up to the 28th show in 
24 weeks or whatever it is now. Uh, and I, I also did Twelfth uh, Night. I played uh, Sir Toby Belch uh, for them. And even though it's readings, we're performing it. We have three days, two and a half days rehearsal before we go on. And, and uh, they cast from around the world. And it's, and it's a blast. It's a great way for actors not to go crazy and give themselves something to do. Yeah, something to do during the pandemic. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's it's horrific how many how many gigs and events I've lost. Uh, probably over, I don't know, forty thousand uh, dollars. Yeah. Government offered me six hundred bucks a week for a little while until the end of July. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. I I have a full time job, luckily, but you know, it's just like I I was in the middle of shooting a short film, and then the pandemic hit, and done, <laughs> basically, until I can figure out ways to shoot it during the pandemic so which yeah, I'm, well, I'm a, lot of, a lot of folk i see even friends i have who are at risk who are taking the risk because they have to they're going under yeah uh, and are you know on set with shields in front of their face mass and and the only time they let it down is for makeup maybe or, or they do their own makeup i uh still fear because you know once again it's an uh, often asymptomatic, and people don't know. People don't have a fever, and they're and they've got it. You know, it's a, a deadly virus. It's that it's, it's sad. I've can't had, take chances. I've had some friends' uh, parents die from it, and different things like that. So it's it's scary. You know, it's just yeah. I, early on, I lost three cousins. Wow. Uh, and then uh, several friends. So it's uh, it's yeah. real. The the hoaxers piss me off more than me you too. Can believe. I, uh, I, I've gotten in so many fights on Facebook that I need to pull back from it sometimes just because I'll, I'll tell people it's real and then they'll get in, they'll, they'll be like, oh, it's a pandemic or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, you're just kind <laughs> of, it's bullshit. It's yeah. murder yeah. with the, uh, uh, herdman, herd immunity theory. That's murder. Yeah. Uh, and the, I've, I've unfriended dear friends and mm-hmm. some relatives because of what you said, they, they, they don't, they won't, they refuse to kind of see reality, which is frightening. Yeah, sadly, since that and then the Black Lives Matter movement uh, picking up more steam lately, I've had to unfriend family and friends because of it, because you start to find out who buys into the bullshit that's out there, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't really want to associate with you right now. So, yeah, I used to, you know, I grew up in the 60s when uh, segregation was they were trying to put the LBJ, you know, did the Civil Rights Act and, and the uh, uh, integration in, in schools was going on where I was living. And I, I remember fourth through sixth grade, or no, not in fourth, but in fifth, I, all of a sudden I had a, a, a Latin best friend and a black best friend and an Asian best friend, which I hadn't before. But I didn't necessarily yeah. understand how how racism why racism uh was so rampant and and to see that it has been you know kind of just still there and hidden uh is saddening and maddening it is. And, and it's systemic and uh i just hope that people would see like my friend's show that i just saw cooper cooper's show was really magnificent where he he dealt with his own not understanding of racism until it was in his face uh, 
uh, bit by bit through his through his growing up, and it's uh, called uh, "Back Black When I Was a Boy." <laughs> <laughs> Great. So if you look for it, Cooper Bates, he definitely really yeah. knocked it out of the park. That's cool. Um, what uh, what kind of advice would you give to anybody that's interested in getting into acting at all? Like Don Adams, forget about it. Yep. No. <laughs> uh, get training. If you're serious, you'll train. Don't go into it for uh, dreams of money <laughs> or fame. If you're going for fame and you're going for money, you're in it for the wrong reason. And and train. Uh, any casting director worth their medal goes right to your training on your resume. And then be smart and proactive. I, I mentor actors all the time, uh, often very young ones. I've had one actor contact me when he was 13. And within a year, he was proving himself and getting his relationship with the lens. Uh, sent me uh, a PSA, a commercial, and a student film that he had done. And uh, within a, a year after that, he was casting. He cast me in a film an indie film that we, we co-starred in. And right after that, he and I co-starred in a short together that became his calling card. And by the age of 17, he was on his way to Hollywood. Within six months, he was playing Bootsy Collins in the James Brown biopic at Universal. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Jay, his name, uh, Justin Hall, Jay Hall. Um, that was, was a great movie, just, too. Yeah. He was confident. My friend Claire Elizabeth, when she was nine... I started mentoring her, uh, got her performing a lot of Crabtree and living history and uh, live theater and educational stuff. And, and she's broke her mold. She learned to sing, dance and do monologues. The next year she wrote her own script and starred with me playing her dad in a horror film that her parents, uh, you know, produced. And she had her own little show on public TV, you know, public access. And then, uh, she started doing pro shoots, winning awards as this little girl playing these dynamic roles in shorts and features. Uh, now she's a, a slam poet and a makeup artist. Wow. Uh, you know, you never know what path you're going to take, mm -hmm. but if you have the inkling to, I, I, as you know, as a director, you empower yourself if you learn the tools that actors use. As soon as you can speak in acting terms that an actor knows, you can draw out a performance instead of saying, well, I need you to cry here. You know, yeah. you, you, need, you need to be able to tell an actor or give an actor the circumstances to create the effect and the means, the ends that you want, as opposed to giving them the ends and expect them to get there. Because not all actors, you know, are trained. You need to be able to work with them. And if you know a little bit of Meisner or fantasy charging, or if you know any sense memory or emotional recall, or if you know... Uh, relaxation stuff that that all goes very far in the 16th hour on a set that's over budget you know it's yeah <laughs> yeah i know i uh i acted for years before i ever directed which was i think helped me out a lot when in the few i mean i've not done anything spectacular but it eventually i think i will so we'll see <laughs> I just I have faith in myself. So one day Absolutely. I'll do one day I'll do that big one. Yep. No, but, got it. But and even it. if you don't, you know, you keep yeah. striving and doing the work that yeah. you can that you and your team can do and you all do your best. Yeah. And uh, I think I mean, I think that that's probably, you know, a good advice, too, is just, you know, motivation and keep, you know, 
determination, I guess is what I'm looking for the word. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, that's, that's the thing that if, if the, that these young actors that I've seen move to Hollywood and are, are successful within a few years, you know, the, the, the saying that an overnight success takes about 20 years, mm -hmm. there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. But I've seen others do it in a fraction of that time because they're so determined and they have blinders on and they take no bullshit and they are clean about where their creative process and their creative stuff is and where their business stuff is. And I, I always ask my students to keep two journals to make sure that those even on the student films that they work on, those that are focused and hardworking, stay in touch with them because eventually they're going to be successful. I, I remember being in acting class with Lawrence Bender, you know, Quentin Tarantino's producer. And yeah. I knew Lawrence was going to be successful. I knew Helen Hunt was going to be successful. She was in that same class. Um, you, you find that the ones that are centered and focused and driven uh, generally don't have time for much else. They're not necessarily all that social. They give you a, a door to open the door to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. What do you think? And if you don't give them the right answer, they move on. Yeah. Because there's no time. Life's too short. Um, uh, before we uh, wrap things up, where can people find your work or anything that you got going on? Um, I, I've got stuff all over the place. Yeah. I, I have many shorts. Uh, when I was teaching at the uh, San Francisco Digital Film School and San Francisco Acting Academy, uh, I often work with filmmakers. I, I had a, a lovely workshop I did, the writers, directors, and actors workout. And some of those filmmakers would cast me in their film. So I've done some great shorts with them. There's one called uh, At Shadow Angel Films. Heather O'Donnell uh, cast me in uh, three of her films. And they're on that site. Uh, three really lovely shorts. Uh, Shadow Angel, uh, don't tell me and uh oh gosh what's the other one a bottle uh bottle caps where i play a homeless man looking looking for his daughter um or no i'm sorry his daughter is looking for him <laughs> uh and then i, I do another <coughs> short that's online uh, both on vimeo and youtube different versions of it a really great parable called nobody's laughing in which i play a, a man who is only comfortable in his own skin unless he's made up as a clown but he's not a clown. So it was really hard for me on that one to not clown, but rather play it straight while in clown makeup. And uh, sort of a mockumentary is quite wonderful. Um, you can find some of my films uh, streaming on Amazon. The Savior of None that I shot a few years ago. I play a uh, very depressed uh, widower with a metal plate in his head who has epilepsy who befriends a, a adolescent girl who's being uh, raped by the local gang and abused and raped by her foster parents. Hmm. Oh, light entertainment. <laughs> sounds, sounds very uplifting and light. Yeah, no, it no. was, you know, it's a little no budget film that uh, is a very important story. And, yeah. and because it had no budget, they, you know, things are uneven in it. Uh, acting is somewhat uneven, but there's some, some great moments. I'm quite proud of it. And, and, you know, some of the magic, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, I did improv for many years with L.A. Theater Sports and other companies. And 
instead, I've learned to use the improv with the script. Example, in a film called Corked, uh, I think about 30, 40% of my performance is improvised uh, off the script. I'd ask the two directors, do you mind if I try this? Do you mind if I try this? And most of the time they'd say yes. And a lot of my performance that made the cut are stuff I came up with. Uh, in in uh, Nobody's Laughing, there was a, a special moment where my daughter who doesn't want her dad dressed as a clown to walk her down the aisle uh, <laughs> kisses him on the cheek and comes away with his makeup on her. And the director said, cut, no, 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 let's wipe it off, let's do it without the makeup. And I was like, no, my God, don't you see that's a gift? That What, she, what just happened there was a friggin' gift and it took me 10 minutes to talk him into it. He said, let's try it both ways. We shot it both ways. And of course he kept it that way and then she transfers it and I won't ruin it anymore. But yeah. the, the, these little miracles happen because you're open to the improv moment in, in the savior of none where I, I, I actually had to study the uh, having grand mal seizures for the epilepsy scene. When the little girl, when he finally pushes her out of his life because of peer pressure uh, and the door closes, I, and this was not planned. I wish it had been. I fell back. I went off, uh, fell back and into a seizure. And luckily the director kept the camera on me uh, and even caught my head cracking into the bar stool that it hit uh, on the big screen. I felt it again. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that now. Uh, and, it, and it becomes an incredibly potent moment in the, in the film. Uh, and, and I don't know that actors who may have minor roles or on, on features or even in television have the uh, opportunity or, or television, you have little time to get a, an episode episodic shot, but a director that trusts the actors that have the improv experience, you can mine the gold. And, mm. and I think when you have the training for both your script study and your improv instincts, um, you'll elevate any project that you're in. And that's what I advocate. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you can find, uh, stuff that I'm doing on my Instagram. You can uh, find me at, at Jeffrey J. Weissman on uh, Twitter. It's at Jeff, J-E-F-1-F Weissman. Uh, on Facebook, it's at Jeffrey Weissman Actor. I often post links to stuff I'm doing. I do a lot of cons, the Back to the Future family, uh, as much as uh, they can embrace me. You know, there's, there's this, this fallout. I'm in the middle of the Crispin Bob Gale. Yeah. Bullshit. And they wish they'd both get over themselves. I know. Um, and, and, uh, they'll, they'll post what cons, uh, fan cons I, I appear at, uh, on, on the back bttf.com. Uh, great people over there. And, and the, uh, you know, the fans, I'm, I, I think what, what's, What's lovely on the Back to the Future thing for me is that I was pretty much in obscurity because the, the studio didn't want me to be promoted at all. They want to keep me a yeah. secret so Crispin wouldn't sue. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> uh, and then when it came out after he sued that I actually spoke with him and, and gave him fuel, they, they blacklisted it and got rid of me. Uh, oh, wow. So uh, I was in obscurity for many years. And there was the DeLorean owners that discovered me and brought me into their shows and embraced me. And uh, then the fan con started picking me up and I now have this nice relationship with uh, comic cons around the world. That's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I always knew about, you know, 
as long as I can remember, I knew about you taking over. So it's, you know, <laughs> I, I, uh, the Back to the Future trilogy is my favorite trilogy. So, I mean, I it, think it's, I think it's better than the Star Wars or the Indiana Jones original trilogy yeah. and all that stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> I've always thought. I, I pinch yeah. myself, you know, I, yeah. I kind of was the adopted bastard in, in this thing. And, uh, the, you know, you say you take over the role. I, I, was never really told I was taking over the role. Yeah, that's <laughs> just kind of... <laughs> I'm kind of imitating Crispin and then hanging upside down was in very few readings or rehearsals. It was go on set and do it. And I'm like, okay. And I'd come up with bits on yeah. set. Like, you know, how's granddad's little pumpkin? I, I said that because Michael as Marlene is in these hot pants that were orange that were stuffed <laughs> in my butt. You know, my head was the level of his, it looked like a pumpkin. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and eating the banana on the fruit, please. You know, I eating a banana upside down. The peel kept slapping me in the face. That was cut. My rotation for pizza was cut, where I did four. Uh, <laughs> I had some comedy, but not really. Yeah, it, it wasn't meat. I wasn't allowed. You know, and they tried to keep me secret. It was kind of screwy. I had uh, one crew member come over to me while we we're shooting and say, "So uh, you know, all this torture hanging upside down was meant for Christmas." I was like, "Oh, great!" <laughs> Getting his <laughs> oh, lucky me. <laughs> Well, it, it was yeah. it was awesome talking to you, and um, hopefully we can do it again sometime. I'd hey, Michael, I'm, I'm sorry you're your co-host and make it. Where are you? Yeah, Ian? Ian? What, uh, Matt, what Matt, I don't know where Matt went. He, Matt, uh, Matt. He, yeah, Matt. He's uh, yeah, he he. Uh, I think he probably just forgot about it or got busy, unfortunately. But we'll. Uh, it's okay. Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> Not a worry. It was really great uh, hanging with you, Michael. Okay, that was. Uh, me talking to Jeffrey Weissman. Um, how are you, Matt? How are you doing tonight? I'm doing, doing all right. Yeah, yeah. Any, uh, any uh, interesting things going on in the world of uh, 2020 for you? <clears throat> uh, not really. I'm just working on some, some more projects, some more music stuff. I might. I might put together another compilation sometime soon. I'm kind of just looking through all of my old stuff and newer stuff and just trying to find, you know, the songs that are the right fit for it. And so kind of a whole thing in of itself, really, just to find the right songs that go into another song. It's like a whole art form to that. So it takes time to to kind of really make a good compilation, at least for me. Yeah, makes sense. You don't want to jump from something really heavy to something really slow and... You know, vice versa. Yeah, and yeah. um, yeah, makes sense. Once that's up or whatever, we'll uh, we'll be sure to uh, have it linked in one of our show notes. Um, also, um, I'm going to link in the show notes um, for today's episode some uh, obviously some places you can find Jeffrey Weissman, who we talked to or I talked to, and uh, then um, some links to uh. Black Lives Matter, um, also uh, some stuff to help people through the pandemic, and many other things that are good charities to donate to. Yeah. Anything else you want to say here, Matt, before we uh, go for today? No, just just have a good night, have a good day or whatever, good week, good month, good year. Tired. Uh Goodyear tires. If if you want to buy tires, sure. You can mm. Go go some tires from Goodyear. Yeah. Or any other. It really doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, but make sure you buy Goodyear because uh, 
President Trump was trying to stop people from buying those. Yeah, yeah. Do, <laughs> do an anti-boycott. Uh, yes. Buy, <laughs> buy extra tires. I mean, buy tires even if you don't have a car. Just go ahead. Just buy them. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, you can use tires for anything. You can do, like, you know, the football practices where you, you know, you jump through the tires or whatever with your feet, you know, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So you could, you know, make a tire swing in your backyard. Yeah, those are always fun. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a backyard, put a tire swing in your apartment. I don't know. Whoa. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be kind of weird, but, you know, if you want to do that, go ahead. Replace, make the ceiling re- re- replace all of your furniture with tires. Yeah. <clears throat> Why not? I mean, you can you can grow um, gardens and tires. I've seen that before. Yeah. So you can have a tire garden. You can even have a tire um, barricade if you're into that sort of thing. If you want to mm-hmm. barricade your house for whatever reason, um, you could do that. Um, don't eat tires. No, don't the eat rubber. Them. No, give you sick, sour stomach. Try that, but um, yeah. <clears throat> or you can make a sequel to that movie <clears throat> that's just about a tire that's rolling all the time. Forgot yeah. the name of it. Um, rubber. So if you want rubber, yeah. So yeah. if you wanted to make a sequel to Rubber, you could just do that. You could just use a tire mm-hmm. that you bought and just, um, you know, film it. I guess. And then, if you can um, really afford it, maybe maybe go buy a Goodyear blimp. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and fill it with tires. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, haven't you always wanted a blimp? That is one of my dreams. I, I I did always want to own a blimp at one point in my life. Yes, and not not to do anything with it, mind you, just just to own it, just to, just have to it. own a blimp. More more of just the academic want desire of owning it rather than actually doing anything with it. Just yeah, just kind of having it on paper that I am an owner of a blimp. You know, we all have our you know our hobbies and stuff. So yes. Some people collect baseball cards. Somebody, some people just want blimps. <laughs> yep. So, sounds good. So, anyways, <laughs> um, hope everybody out there is staying safe, wearing masks, you know, keeping that social distance, being good, treating each other well online and social media. <laughs> yep. All the good stuff that we're supposed to do. Yeah, that we're supposed to do. Yeah, peace and love, (laughs) harmony, all that good stuff. But uh, for right now, this is uh, this is it for this episode. Um, Bye bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to All Too Real Two podcast, a Cullen Park production, produced and edited by Michael E. Cullen II. Music by Matthew Hawes. Subscribe and share the show. Visit us at CullenPark.com.